0: Pretty fun to uh, see my little girl heading off to uh, serve the kingdom and uh, to get a little experience outside of us, disciples, but we uh, celebrate that all together as we collectively kind of send her off, so um, good, good stuff. Okay, sports fans, let's, uh, let's start here today. Who's on your Mount Rushmore for greatest football players of all time? You don't have to shout it out, but think in your head who are your, your five greatest if you're a, a football fan July, we're in our last month of the year without football, so NFL's coming back in August, I believe. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at you, because oh, your team's barely in the NFL, and so we just want to celebrate you and all that you are. Uh, all right, maybe sports isn't your thing. Maybe it's movies. Uh, think about the, the five most important movie franchises in history that would you would find on your Mount Rushmore of film that has shaped film culture. When we We turn our attention to the Mount Rushmore of the stories of Scripture. What five narratives in Scripture would make your Mount Rushmore? What would be the five keys that if you thought, these are the only five narratives that I could carry with me about the story of God and his people and his reconciling work to restore all of creation? What are the five? I got a little bit of a jump start, obviously, so I get to cheat. You know, creation would certainly be there. Uh, the story of the cross would be there and those events of Holy Week. Uh, I'd, I'd have to put kind of new heaven and new earth from Revelation in there, this idea that a time is coming where, where pain is gone. Uh, a few stories and teachings of Jesus would probably have to get in there somewhere. But I, I bet if pressed, I bet if given a few moments to build your Mount Rushmore of the stories of Scripture. For at least a few of us, the story of 1 Samuel 17 would make it onto your Mount Rushmore. The story of David and Goliath. This iconic story that even for those of us who maybe have no church background, we have some sort of cursory knowledge of the story of David and Goliath. And and books upon books upon books have been written about that idea, the David and Goliath. Story of David and Goliath. Samuel in 1 Samuel 16 is Pastor Dan so well. If you didn't catch Pastor Dan's talk last week, uh, pick it up. And and if you're not a listener, ask him for the manuscript. I read it again this morning and was so inspired uh, by the words God spoke through him. Uh, 1 Samuel 16, which, by the way, is a bit of an aside, isn't necessarily chronological with 1 Samuel 17. The the writer of 1 Samuel doesn't necessarily place all the events in sequential order. He places them in the order to let the story serve the theology, not the theology, the story. That's a bit of a, a different thing for a different day, but it will help us here in a few moments as we arrive at chapter 17. But in verse 16... Samuel has arrived to David, and through the leading of God, has anointed David to be the next king. The power and the anointing has moved off of Saul. And he goes through the whole line of all the different brothers at the house, and God keeps saying, no, it's not him. No, it's not him. What else do you have? And David's father just says, well, I got, I got my youngest, David, but he just, he's like the kind of artist-musician of the family. Uh, he's out taking care of sheep and he's anointed. And it's just after chapter 16 that we then get the picture of chapter 17. And again, while they may not be sequential necessarily, it is the way the author wanted us to envision this story of God and his people unfolding. And for many, the story in chapter 17 is a familiar one. Big, bad, mean old Goliath, right? Nine feet tall, the scriptures tell us he was baddest guy in the Philistine army, comes out and just mocks Israel every day. He's a crusher, and young David has shown up with some supplies sent from his dad to give to his brothers who were serving on the front lines of the war, kind of there to check up on things and report back. David grabs just a slingshot and five smooth stones from the river, and knocks Goliath in the forehead. It says the, the stone goes deep into his forehead and drops him dead. And, and it would be easy for us to conclude, it is easy for us to conclude, a tidy little moral to the story at the end of that. And we, we kind of grab the details that serve the moral and the details that don't serve that moral. We have a, a really fascinating way of letting those details kind of fall away from our memory. And what we remember is this young David strapped with courage and the anointing of the Lord walks in there and wipes out the big bad guy. It would also be rather simple for us to conclude that this is a story of inspiration for you and I to rise up and to do hard things amidst great opposition. For with God, all things are possible. Who is your Goliath? I can't tell you how many times I've said in my life. And that too is good. And, and lovely. There's no gotcha. There's no, uh, there's no, you've been a bad follower of Jesus by thinking that way. No, those, those are true and real things. But I think uh, given our perspective, and I think given the thousands of years that have passed since that time, we would be wise to maybe peel back the layers just a, a wee bit deeper and to ask God, to search God, And to say, what does this story tell us about our king, about our King Jesus that we have? You have an outgoing king in Saul who doesn't quite know he's outgoing yet, and that's gonna be a joy to watch unfold. You have the incoming king in David who's a young guy and doesn't yet quite know what it is he's doing. But we have the King of Kings. So what is it we learn about who God is and how God operates and how his economy works, how his culture operates, how his kingdom works things out? Turn with me to 1 Samuel 17, if you would, and we'll pick up about midway through the chapter in verse 16 because I I feel like you either probably have a familiarity with the story that I can skip a few early details, or I've maybe given enough to you to catch up. Pray with me as we start, if you would. Lord Jesus, in these minutes remaining, may your word come to life for us. May your son, Jesus, be even more firmly established as the king of our lives and of our hearts. And we pray in his name, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First Samuel 17, uh, beginning in verse 16. Let me pick up the story. For 40 days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champion, that's Goliath, strutted in front of the Israelite army. One day, Jesse said to David, Jesse is David's dad, take this basket of roasted grain and then 10 loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers. Give these 10 cuts of cheese to their captain. See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report on how they're doing. Verse 19, David's brothers were with Saul and the Israelite army at the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out early the next morning with the gifts as Jesse had directed him. David arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. Soon the Israelites and Philistine forces stood forcing each other, army against army, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, and he hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking to them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks, and then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army Israel. And as, as soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away with fright. Have you seen the giant? the men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. And the king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He'll give that man one of his daughters to be a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. David asked the soldiers nearby, what will a man get for killing the Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? A very interesting question that we'll come back to. Uh, Let that one sink in a bit. Who's this pagan Philistine anyway? That he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God. And these men gave David the same reply. And they said, yes, that is the reward for killing him. In these early verses, we get a glimpse into some of David's superpower that would also be, at times in his life, his Achilles heel. The very thing that made David so special, <laughs> the way that God had knitted him together, the way that God had fashioned him and prepared him, would also, in later seasons of David's life, in later moments, his brothers would probably argue in this moment, would be the very thing that sort of unravels David. He asks the soldiers in verse 26, essentially, what's in it for me to kill this guy? Like, that's a weird question, is it not? You've got a whole army of men there about to do battle for 40 days. This has been going on, this sort of standoff with this Philistine monster named Goliath. And David rolls in with a charcuterie board and a chip on his shoulder and says, hey, What's in it for me if I just take care of things? In fact, Eugene Peterson in his rewriting of the account in the message says it this way. What's in it for the man who kills that Philistine and gets rid of this ugly blot on Israel's honor? You see, asking the question, what's in it for me, A question, uh, I don't want to turn too quickly to us, but a question that you and that me and that us, we are quite comfortable asking the what's in it for me question on a very regular basis, right? Advocating for ourselves. And we've got all kinds of incredibly helpful and therapeutic phrases that we put along with this uh, in our culture. But at, at the root of it, we are often asking the question, what's in it for me? What do I get out of it? It's not evil in itself. It's a pretty human response, really. But even if it's value neutral, this kind of thinking, this kind of what's in it for me, is we we have to respect that it is shaping David and who he is. We have to own the reality that at some guttural subterranean level, this desire to ask the question, what's in it for me, or how can I get ahead by solving this problem, is shaping him. It's impacting and forming who David is and who David is becoming. And it's a reflection of who he has already become, to some extent. Am I bugging you? I don't mean to bug you. I know a lot of us have like named our kids after David, so I... It's it's gonna be good. It's gonna be okay. Take a breath. I'm not gonna blow up your view of scripture. I don't think. But because while this very question is falling out of David's mouth, all that echoes in my head is what Pastor Dan led us through in just the prior chapter of Scripture. Maybe you'll remember it if I refresh you. Because in chapter 16. Samuel is coming to anoint David and he's looking for the next king to replace Saul because God says he's removed his spirit from Saul. And Samuel arrives at the house of Jesse to look through all the different sons to find the next king. And when he arrives at David, the Lord says to Samuel, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. And we have this kind of, this tension that we live in with this, this juxtaposition of like, God's not looking at the outward appearance. God's, and and we can take that a number of ways. Again, most of which is right. God doesn't look at Goliath's size and stature and find that intimidating. He sees in David the heart of a warrior. But David's also asking this question, what can I get out of it? We continue on in chapter 17, but when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking, I'm in verse 28, talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing here anyway? Any of you have little brothers, like you're just living this out, right? You know, your little brother shows up to the party and it's like, what are you doing, kid? What are you doing here? What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? you just feel like the sarcasm and disgust in Big Brother? Those few sheep, you know? What happened to those? I know, you're, I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. Pretty biting words. David says, what, what have I done now, verse 29? I was only asking a question. He walked over some others and he asked the same thing and received the same answer. And then David's question was reported to King Saul and the king sent for him. And a conversation ensues and a bit of a debate. In fact, King Saul says, you're out of your mind. Uh, don't be ridiculous in verse 33. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy. He's been a man of war since youth, but David persists. And, and David walks Saul through a bit of his story. He says, listen, I, I protect dad's sheep, but on a number of occasions, those sheep have been attacked by lions and by bears, and I've wrestled those lions away, and I have beat them to death with a club. And he, he lands this kind of plane, if you will, at this concept that, listen, God rescued me back then, When I was rescuing sheep from the lion and the bear, he will rescue me now as well. And so off he goes to fight David, or to fight Goliath. David has this kind of confidence of his convictions to move forward with what he senses he can do. And when all else fails, he reminds everybody that God's going to see him through, that God will rescue him. And again, we can easily read this. From the heroic perspective, that against all odds, a young David rises up and defeats the enemy. And if we read on, not only does he defeat them, like, it's a bloodbath. They don't, he doesn't just defeat Goliath. He defeats Goliath, and then the entire Philistine army runs away, and Israel chases after them and slaughters every last one of them, and then steals all their stuff. It's a complete routing. In fact, uh, the New Living Translation, the little headers above the text, I think, says Israel routes the Philistines. I think this is a good place to pause and reflect for just a moment. Now, I want to invite you into uh, just a thought experiment of two different questions. And the first question is this. uh, Do I want to live like this? Like, do I want to be young, David? I'm not going to ask you to answer. I'm not going to ask you to write it down. I'm not going to ask you to, you know, like nail it to a cross or anything like that. I just pose the question and invite you to honestly reflect. Is Is this how you want to live? And then follow up with this. However you answered that question. Why do I want to live like that? Whether you answered it yes or no or maybe or I'm confused, why do you want to live like that? Maybe a secondary question that can help us as we take a little internal walk through what's going on in our souls is what does the Lord see in my heart? You know, if 1 Samuel 16 is true, and if God does actually see and care about what's going on in our heart and not the outward appearance, and and by the way, for what it's worth, I believe that's true. I believe it with great confidence. If that's true, what does God see when he looks at your heart? Do you even know? to see when he's gazing into your soul in this very moment. Especially as it relates to revisiting this story of David and this young warrior who routs the enemy. Because we see this scenario play out in the life of Christ over and over again. He reminds us in the Sermon on the Mount which is if nothing else, the, the greatest synopsis of the gospel of the kingdom that we will ever get in Matthew 5. Go into Matthew 6 too if you're a reader. If you're not, you can just hang out in Matthew 5 and like, you could probably just hang in the first 15, 20 verses until you're 90 and, and you'd, like, you'd be all right in life. But in there, Jesus says that God blesses the humble and the merciful and those who work for peace. Do You feel the juxtaposition between that and the proud young man who says, what's in it for me if I murder this guy? And not only shall we murder, let's, when the army runs away for safety, let's chase them down and slaughter them all. And then let's steal their stuff. I get that it's water they swam in. It's it's the reality of the culture in that day. And we'll play with that a little bit in a little while. But nonetheless, it's quite different than the picture of reality that Jesus paints in his kingdom. The kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. Later in that same Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus reminds us that even in the midst of worship, if we remember that someone else is offended with us, that we should lay our offering down, not make it song, gift, prayer, except for your tithe. You should always give your tithe first, no matter what. Choking, <laughs> chill out. And we lay our offering down if we think somebody's offended with us. And then we lay the offering down and we go and we reconcile ourselves to that person. Which certainly, you know, there's a practical to that, of course. But the bigger picture there that Jesus is driving home for them is, this is how I view my creation. That creation is to work in a reconciled way together. That the Imago day is flowing through us all. Talk about a different way to live, right? And this kind of teaching and training from Jesus just carries on throughout his entire ministry as if to reverse the assumption that the ends justify the means. It doesn't matter how we got there as long as we get to where we're supposed to go. But in the Jesus economy, it's like upside down. It's as if he says, no, the means are everything. The means are everything. How you get there is everything. How you live it out is everything. We've been so focused in the Christian life for the better part of the last 80 years in America about getting all of us into heaven. when It would seem that Jesus' intent was to get heaven into us. David gives us a glimpse, a snapshot, if you will, into the deliverance and the conquering person of Christ. What it is to have a king that loves their people, that fears nothing, that stands up to any opposition and always wins the day. It's a beautiful little snapshot to, to encourage Israel that there is hope. You're not just gonna wallow In oppression forever, there there is hope on the horizon. And and they get this little snapshot, but let us not forget, it's a snapshot. And, you know, you zoom out, there's a whole bigger picture of God's kingdom. But it is a foreshadowing of the Savior. No question about it. From the stump of Jesse, Isaiah says that's where Jesus will come from. The tie back to David. From Bethlehem, David has just announced earlier that he's just a lowly shepherd boy from Bethlehem. He's a rising king. And this hits for most of us on all the kinds of kind of subterranean desires we carry that we would be wise to be honest about, at least with ourselves. The desire to be king, to be a conqueror, to kill our enemies, Who here hasn't imagined that? No, just me. To prove to our dad and brother that we're big and we're strong. To protect our people. To save those we love. You see, David is a rising star in the kingdom. And he is serving a king In that kingdom, for whom the spirit of the Lord has left. Chapter 16, verse 14 tells us, the spirit of the Lord has left Saul. This same king that David serves, who suffers from a tormenting spirit that troubles him day and night. David serves a king who is filled with depression and fear. This is the water in which David swims. Some of you are probably recounting, boy, that sounds like my boss (laughs) or my spouse or one of my kids or one of my parents. But in contrast, we serve a God who's given us a king who is different than all that. Jesus is our king, and our king does not ask what's in it for me. Our king king declares I am in it for the world. Our king does not deliver the victory with his enemy's head in his hand. Our king delivers the victory with a nail through his hand. Our king does not deliver victory by spilling the blood of his enemies. Our king delivers the victory by spilling his own blood. You see, the the picture, the juxtaposition between the kingdoms of this world and how they operate and the kingdom of God and how it operates could not be any further apart. The simple question really becomes, in what kingdom am I operating? Because I'm given the opportunity in every conversation, in every part of my day, to operate in one of those two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world that uses power and coercion, intimidation and fear to get what it wants, or the kingdom of God that says, oh no, (laughs) love prevails in all things. Humility wins the day. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for me, Jesus says. You see, the king we serve dictates a whole lot of the way we live. And we can engineer this either way. We can reverse engineer it and go, well, how am I living? And say, well, the way I'm living says a lot about the kingdom I'm serving. Or we can say it from the other vantage point and say, what kingdom do I want to serve? I want to be in the kingdom of God i want to live out the kingdom values of God. Well, what kind of way would I live in that kingdom? So when we see our life focused on revenge, we can be sure we are not living in the king with Jesus as our king. When we see our life focused on ourselves, we can be sure we are not serving King Jesus when we sense the desire rising up to hold our enemy's head in our hand, we can be sure we are not serving King Jesus. And why? Well, because those sorts of things are not created in God's kingdom. They're not even part of it. It's not part of God's kingdom. You see, when Jesus is our king, we're becoming increasingly humble and merciful and pursuers of peace and reconciliation. When Jesus is our king, when the Holy Spirit controls our lives, Galatians 5, right? Naturally overflowing from us are these nine characteristics we call fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I'm not saying self-control. Uh, you know. These are the things that occur in us. When Jesus is our king, we see the heart of another, not the outward appearance. I think back to um, my early days in school as a little kid, and I may be hard to believe, but um, I was a little wild child, and I remember like distinctly coming in from recess. Um, I, it must have been like kindergarten-ish, because I don't think they did this in elementary, but for you elementary school teachers, tell me if I'm wrong or you know when this was, but they bring you in from recess, and I was like the hot, sweaty kid who had just been playing tetherball or you know four square or wall ball or you know chasing somebody or being chased by somebody. And you'd come in and you'd sit down, and you're hot and you're sticky, and your heart is still racing. The teacher would say, "Okay, now we're gonna. I just want you to lay down on your little carpet square, and I'm gonna read you a story." And you would just slowly kind of feel all the anxieties and the energies and the and the, you know, driving, whatever, kind of leave your body. Uh, as best I can, I'd like to give you that gift in these next moments. Because it's Sunday. Anybody got the Sunday scaries yet? You got work tomorrow? I'm still on vacation for my day job. You've got them? Okay. Yeah, you just feel that anxiety that Monday's coming, and there's things to be done. There's grocery trips to do, and houses to clean up, and laundry to switch, and all this stuff i invite the band to come up and prepare themselves to lead us in a closing song, but I want to read you a fairly lengthy excerpt from a book uh, by Henry Nouwen called "In the Name of Jesus." I, I put a link to it in the in the um, notes for today, so you can grab it if you so desire, or um, if you're really, really nice and you promise to read it, I'll let you borrow my copy. Uh, Henry Nouwen, uh writes in his book. Um, this sort of picture of the way of Jesus for us. So if it's helpful to you, close your eyes and just reflect on this and I'll I'll read it to you. Um, Look at Jesus, he writes. The world did not pay any attention to him at all. He was crucified and put away. His message of love was rejected by a world in search of power, efficiency, and control. But there he was, appearing with wounds, In his glorified body to a few friends who had eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. This rejected, unknown, wounded Jesus simply asked, Do you love me? Do you really love me? He whose only concern had been to announce the unconditional love of God had only one question to ask. Do you love me? The question is not, how many people take you seriously? How much are you going to accomplish? Can you show some results? No. But are you in love with Jesus? Perhaps another way of putting the question would be, do you know the incarnate God? In our world of loneliness and despair, There is an enormous need for men and women who know the heart of God, a heart that forgives, cares, reaches out, and wants to heal. In that heart, there is no suspicion, no vindictiveness, no resentment, not even a tinge of hatred. It is a heart that wants only to give love and receive love in response. It is a heart that suffers immensely because it sees the magnitude of human pain and the great resistance to trusting the heart of God who wants to offer consolation and hope. The Christian leader of the future is the one who truly knows the heart of God as it has become flesh, heart of flesh in Jesus, knowing God's heart means consistently and radically and very concretely to announce and reveal that God is love and only love and that every time fear, isolation, or despair begins to invade the human soul, this is not something that comes from God. We're gonna stand and sing a song of worship here in just a moment. And I encourage you to engage in that with all your heart and soul. But I've had a few of you come to me uh, just this morning. And uh, there's a common thread of just career stuff that you're facing. I don't know if it's like it's just summertime and career changes are happening or if there's like something supernatural happening in our little world of Disciples Church. And so I just want to be attentive to that. Uh, We've already prayed over one of you today and anointed with oil just anointed with oil to simply represent the touch of the spirit. Uh, Knowing that anything we muster in that has a way of sort of swinging back towards the kingdom of this world that uses power and coercion. But the way of Christ is a different way. And boy, maybe nowhere else in our lives are those two worlds tempted to operate than at work, right? Right. So as we sing this worship song, um, if you, like uh, one other in Katie, would like to be anointed with oil and just prayed for over career stuff, I'd just love to do that. It'll be very brief, and you can just come right up to the front. I'll step down here, and we'll worship and sing. And uh, if it was just Katie, that's just fine too, all right? Okay, friends, let's stand and worship together. I'd love to anoint and pray for.